Welcome to Intergenerational Politics with Jill Weinbanks and Victor Shi, where we host weekly political discussions that are engaging and relevant to all generations. As always, we want to thank you for listening to Intergenerational Politics. If you haven't done so already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. And we also have a website, intergenerationalpolitics.com. This is Victor. Um, I'm the co-host of this podcast, also an incoming freshman expert at UCLA. I'm Jill Wine-Banks, the author of The Watergate Girl, based on my experiences during the Watergate trial, where I was the only woman. I'm an MSNBC legal analyst and the very proud co-host with Victor of this podcast. Today, we are coming to you just three days after the election to talk about the process of counting ballots and how that works, and also what we can expect in the next days and weeks as we face certain uh, uncertainty in the results. We couldn't be more grateful to be joined today by Ari Berman, a senior reporter at Mother Jones. He's covering voting rights, and he's also the author of Give Us the Ballad, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. Nothing could be more relevant to the topic today, so thank you for being here, Ari. Hey, Jill. Hey, Victor. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. So um, before we get started with what's happening in this election and some of the misinformation that Trump is spreading about mail and ballots and voting, um, I want you to help our audience understand the process behind counting ballots, because while it looks clearer and clearer that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will become the next president and vice president, um, there are still votes to be counted. So, um, you know, to my understanding, there there are three, sometimes four phases of counting ballots, the count, the canvas, the recount, um, if requested, if it falls under um, the automatic recount rules, and after that, the, uh, the certification of the count. So can you help us ex- kind of go through what precisely happens in each phase? Yeah, absolutely. So th- laws vary by state, but there are some similarities according to the states. So in 30 states, your ballot, if you vote by mail, has to arrive by election day. Then there are a certain number of states, 18 to 20 states, where your mail ballot could potentially arrive after election day, as long as it's postmarked by election day, as in the case of Pennsylvania, North Carolina, some other places. Every single state counts ballots after election day because people vote in a lot of different ways. Some people vote uh, in person on election day. Some people vote early in person. Some people vote by mail. Members of the military and overseas voters are allowed to have their ballots in after election day in 29 states because it could take a while for the post office to deliver them. So what we're seeing now in terms of states counting their ballots is a completely normal thing. The fact that the count is taking a little bit longer in some states is because uh, there's a huge amount of mail-in votes and those take longer. And not only that, the rules of when you can start counting varies by state. So for example, in Florida, when they get a mail ballot, they can open that ballot when it arrives. In Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Michigan, they were not able to open those ballots until election day, or in the case of Michigan, a day before the election. And that was because the Republican state legislatures in those states refused to allow election officials to open those ballots earlier. So it's funny that we're in a situation where Republicans are complaining that the vote in Pennsylvania is taking too long when they were the ones who prevented election officials from counting ballots earlier. But I just want to emphasize, 
everything that's happening now is normal. It's how the counting process works. That uh, some states, your ballot can arrive before election day, some states it can arrive after, but ballots are always counted after election day because there are no official results. No results are officially certified on election night or even the day after. Right, right. And can so, I just ask a follow-up yeah. on that? Because I really want to try to paint a picture for our listeners and, and even our viewers that exactly what happens. You know, I cast a ballot in Illinois on a machine that's electronic. Where does that go? Or in Illinois, I fill out a mail-in ballot and I put it in a drop box, a, a ballot box at a polling place or in the post office, which then delivers it to the polling place. So for both of those kinds of, you know, either a machine vote or a paper ballot. And I understand that with a mail ballot, opening the envelope takes time. So that adds a little bit of time to counting that ballot. But is there any difference between counting a mail ballot and a paper ballot that you did in person at the polling place? Well, good question, Jill. I mean, it's easier to count ballots in person, right? Because those are instantaneous results. I mean, when I vote in New York, for example, on a machine, I vote and it says your vote has been cast and I can see what number I am as well. So we have instantaneous results and then most states have a paper trail of that as well. Yes. So they can compare the paper result to the electronic result to make sure there are no irregularities. When you vote by mail, it takes longer because as you said, you have to physically open the ballot. And so what they were doing, for example, in Philadelphia yesterday, they were opening all of those mail ballots. Then they have to verify the signatures and do all of that stuff, which if you vote in person, you show your identification, you verify your signature before you vote, right? right. In mail, it's a process that happens after. So it just takes a little bit longer to vote by mail, but it's the same ballot. That's what, that's what I really want people to understand. Right. These are different methods of voting, but it's the same vote at the end of the day. It's not like you get a different ballot if you vote by mail versus voting in person. Uh, and the other thing is we had a higher number of mail ballots, but it's not like the first time anybody voted by mail in these states. All of these states have had experience with mail voting among some of the people, among members of the military, among overseas voters. It's just that we saw a much higher number. In right. Pennsylvania, I think it was something like 4% of voters voted by mail in 2018. And this year they had millions of mail ballots. So it just takes longer to, to count them. But, but the mail ballot, if you vote in certain areas of my state, they still don't have machines. They have a paper ballot that you fill out with a pen. And is that counted exactly the same way physically? You know, the actual, I turn in my ballot into a ballot box at the polling place on election day, but if my ballot was already opened as it can be in Illinois and placed in the same ballot box, it would be counted exactly in the same way, wouldn't it? Yes, and I mean, the thing is they have machines and stuff to help sort these things. Right. So they, they, you're not, election workers are not physically going one by one through these ballots because that would take forever. So, but, but they have to verify the information um, afterwards. So there, there's a process here and, and it takes a little bit of time and that's why, the best thing is to allow people, election officials to open these ballots when they arrive, because then you don't have 1.5 million ballots to have to count in a day or two or three, which is what election officials were doing in Pennsylvania. I mean, so yesterday 
People are working all day in Pennsylvania. They have poll watchers standing six feet away from them based on a court order, which, okay, maybe that's fine for COVID standards, but imagine that you've been up all night counting ballots and there's a partisan observer standing right next to you watching everything you're doing. I mean, it was a very stressful situation that uh, election officials were put under. And I think it was very unfortunate that these people that were working around the clock to make sure votes are counted were being demonized by some people rather than celebrated for their efforts. I'm not sure six feet is enough for COVID standards. Now, unfortunately, we have seen a lot of misinformation where people are claiming that election officials are receiving votes after the election when in fact they were not. So there was a lawsuit in Georgia, for example, that the Trump campaign filed where a Republican poll worker said 53 ballots in Savannah arrived after election day and shouldn't have been counted. Well, election officials very quickly told a judge, no, the 53 ballots arrived by election day and the judge threw out the lawsuit a day later. So like that should have never gone to court. Like that could have been verified very, very easily before it went before a judge. And that's the kind of thing you're hearing. You're hearing like a rumor here, a rumor there. I mean, it's stuff that, you know, you as a prosecutor, you'd have never brought the kind of cases that the Trump campaign is bringing right now, because it's all based on rumors and innuendo instead of facts. As a lawyer, not a prosecutor, but as even a defense lawyer, there are rules that say a frivolous lawsuit has consequences, that the frivolous plaintiff has to pay at least the costs. And I would say that there have been a number of frivolous cases. The one you just mentioned certainly is one. The claims in Pennsylvania is another very good example of, they're saying fraud with absolutely no evidence of it, none. And when asked for it, they can't produce it. So I think there have to be consequences to the people filing lawsuits frivolously. And everybody should keep in mind that we can't let people keep tying up the courts with ridiculous, fraudulent, fake claims. Sorry, go ahead, Victor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll definitely get into that point a little bit later on. But um, to me, this whole process is so frustrating, especially when, um, you know, you kind of alluded to this uh, earlier, when it comes to states like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, which all passed laws prohibiting counting mail-in ballots until election day. Um, in your view, how much smoother would this process have been um, if we just had counted those votes before election day instead of having these Republican legislators um, going in and changing these rules? Well, we would have been done Tuesday night or Wednesday morning. I mean, there, there really would have been nothing to discuss. I mean, we would have known that Joe Biden would have won the election. I mean, even certain states, Wisconsin had some constraints on them, but even they were able to count all the votes um, with a lot of hard work. Uh, by five in the morning, they were basically done, but not every state was that organized. So the fact that we knew the results in Florida and in and we think we know the results in North Carolina uh, and some other states in Ohio, but we don't know the results uh, or, or we didn't know the results in Pennsylvania and Michigan was just a result of the way the state laws worked. I mean, it wasn't a result that one state was doing something nefarious that another state was doing. And so everyone knew this was gonna happen. I mean, this was the frustrating thing is people like me had been saying for months, some states are gonna be able to release earlier. Some states are gonna be able to release later. The states that actually will decide the election are going to have to count their votes later. There's going to be a big shift because of mail ballots. And 
not only that, that Trump was going to cry fraud when it showed that he was losing those mail ballots. So everything that's happened was completely predictable, that it would take longer to count votes in Pennsylvania because the legislature said that they couldn't do it earlier, that there would be a huge shift in mail ballots because Democrats overwhelmingly voted by mail because they were concerned about COVID. Republicans were not as concerned and Trump told them not to vote by mail and that those mail ballots would overwhelmingly favor the Democrats, that Trump would make all of these crazy claims. And then suddenly people were saying, oh my God, we're in this crisis. No, like everything was already scripted, but people freaked out anyways. And we could have avoided a lot of this if these three states had just allowed people to count their ballots earlier. Now, if it's a close election, it's gonna take a little longer. I mean, if it's 10,000 votes, it's just gonna take a little bit longer because uh, you know there's different margins and then you have to get into, is, is there a recount uh, and things like that. Georgia is gonna take a while because it's a few thousand votes and there's gonna be a longer process there. But by and large, everything that's happened is stuff that we expected to happen. When you talk about a recount, I just wanna follow up on that a little which is the history of recounts, as I understand it, is that it almost never changes the outcome. Uh, I mean, if the difference is 500 votes, that could make a difference in a recount. But where the difference is 10,000, 20,000, has there ever been a case where a recount changes anything? Not in a long time. I mean, not unless there's widespread fraud or irregularities that are then only uncovered um, during a recount. But you're right. I mean, Florida was an exceptional situation in 2000, both because it was so close and there were a lot of voting issues. So it was the combination of the two of those things. If it's just close, but there's not a lot of voting issues, a recount changes 50 or 100 votes, right? And so I'm not expecting the recounts to, to change that much. I'm expecting there to be a little bit more confusion uh, because of mail ballots and laws changing. It's possible that in states, there could be litigation about ballots that arrived after election day. I mean, the Trump campaign, for example, is saying that even though under P Pennsylvania state law, it was legal for ballots to be able to arrive three days after the election, as long as they were sent by election day, they're still gonna to try to challenge that before the Supreme Court. But you're not actually talking about that many ballots. I mean, one of the things that's actually been uh, pretty positive in my view is that voters seem to get the message in terms of what the law said. And they, they turned their ballots in before election day because they didn't want those ballots to be thrown out even if state law allowed it. So there could be some ballots that are gonna be thrown out because it's too late. I think that's very unfortunate that that's going to be the case. I do not anticipate those ballots changing the result of any election. Can you tell me why you think that's possible? Because it seems to me that if a state says it's legal as long as it's postmarked, but arrives within three days, let's say, and different states have a day, whatever it is. Um, and we know, for example, that military ballots are always allowed to arrive later than election day. Um, and let me just throw into the pot that here you have clear evidence that the post office has been secreting ballots and not delivering them that under the leadership of Donald Trump and Louis DeJoy, the postmaster general, they aren't delivering on time. So what do you do about ballots that could have been delivered on time, but that the US government that is the Republican led post office uh, withheld? How can you? prevent them from being counted, even if they didn't get there by the state deadline. Well, that, that's a really good point. And, and, and I think that's why 
Pennsylvania and North Carolina and other states decided to give voters more time to return those ballots precisely because of those um, post office delays. And the only reason we're talking about this is because a few Supreme Court justices left the door open to potentially invalidating ballots after the fact, which was a very scary proposition for democracy. So in the Pennsylvania case, for example, uh, both John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh declined to overrule the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's ruling that ballots could arrive three days later. But Sam Alito in his dissent basically said, come back to us and maybe we'll throw these ballots out. And of course, Amy Coney Barrett is now on the court. And the Supreme Court has taken this fairly radical position that state legislatures essentially override state Supreme Courts, which was a position that Justice Rehnquist took in Bush v. Gore, but was only joined by two other justices, Antonin Scalia and Clarence Thomas. So it was never a controlling opinion in Bush v. Gore. Not only that, the majority in Bush v. Gore said, don't cite this case as a precedent. So basically what Alito and some others are doing is they're citing a case that's not relevant and they're citing an opinion that's not controlling, try to rewrite the law in terms of what the ballots say. And I mean, the whole reason that the court decided to overrule the state legislatures is because the state legislatures were refusing to act to make voting easier in a pandemic, which is a pretty crazy thing when you think about it, mixed with those post office delays you were talking about. Well, now you're scaring me. I was very optimistic and perhaps naive in believing that even this conservative Supreme Court would not throw out ballots legally cast under the rules of the state. And now you've got me scared. Well, to be clear, I don't know what they're going to do. I think that the Supreme Court's going to be very reluctant to intervene in this election because the election is essentially over. So, I mean, I, I'm sure there's a, some judges that want to set a bad precedent, right? But I mean, I don't, I don't get, John Roberts, first off, never wanted to get involved in this. Uh, I, Amy Coney Barrett, why would she decide to get involved in this when she could do all this other stuff down the road? So I'm, I actually, I think we probably have dodged a bullet um, with the Supreme Court in this one. I don't want to make any predictions for the court, but I mean, you know the courts better than I do, but I just don't see why they would go on a limb when they don't need to, and the election's already basically been decided by the voters. Well, that's what I'm still hoping. So um, I, I, I'm not a predictor. We'll have to see. Um, and we'll know it soon because on January 20th, one of the two is going to be sworn in. And um, we probably will know much sooner than that because uh, ballots will be confirmed uh, and certified, and then electors will be selected and will vote. Exactly. So, um, we'll just, I'm going to take the, the last opinion better than the first one, which is that there is unlikelihood that the Supreme Court will weigh in on frivolous claims and will go out on a limb to disenfranchise people. Yeah. And Victor, if I can just explain those dates that Jill was talking about. So, yeah, yeah please. States have basically between one to three weeks usually to, to canvas their votes. Um, in some states, they do it quicker. In some states like California, it's going to take a little bit longer because in California, your mail ballot can arrive like two weeks after the election. Mm -hmm. So I mean, but everyone has a date in which they need to do it. Then the electors will meet in December. And then the Congress will certify that count in early January. And then a new president will be sworn in. Um, 
in mid-January. Now, if there's a recount, it takes a little bit longer. Florida 2000 was a very unique case because there was so much litigation. Normally, recounts wrap up within a few weeks. And you're basically just re-canvassing the votes to make sure there was there, you didn't miss anything, there weren't any mistakes, there weren't ballots that were counted that shouldn't have been counted or vice versa. There weren't ballots that should have been counted um, that didn't show up. But usually these things don't change a lot. And there, the process this year is gonna be the same um, as the process uh, every year. And I mean, there were a lot of nightmare scenarios going into this election that it could take forever to count the votes, that this could all be tied up in court for months, that the that the that there might be dueling electors appointed, that we might have two presidents uh, both trying to claim victory, uh, all this stuff. That all to me seems very unlikely at this moment in time. I don't wanna make any sweeping predictions because we're not done with the process, but I am anticipating that this election is going to go pretty much the same as other ones. I think one candidate will refuse to concede. I think one candidate will not agree to a quote unquote normal transfer of power. I don't think it's gonna matter because I think the other branches of government, particularly the states that certify the results and the Congress that ultimately accepts the results will declare the process legitimate. And I think that members of both parties are eager to move on here. And I would also say, Republicans still control the Senate as of now. Republicans can tr still control all of these key states. So I don't think they really wanna go out on a limb here and allow Donald Trump to obstruct a peaceful transfer of power when they re retain these other key levers of power elsewhere. So I am fairly optimistic um, about how the transfer of power goes, but the point is, the incumbent president really has no power over all of this stuff. Donald Trump doesn't decide how votes are counted. He doesn't decide how votes are certified. He doesn't decide which presidential electors are appointed. He doesn't decide whether the Congress accepts those results. So he can refuse to concede, but it's basically a meaningless concession. Yeah, and I think one of the hopeful things was yesterday after his presser in which he, you know, fraudulently, in which he falsely claimed that um, all these ballots were um, filled with fraud. Um, a lot of Republican senators as well as Republican um, representatives um, came out and denounced um, what he said. And um, hopefully that's an indication of, you know, these Republicans are going to push back on some of these claims that are being asserted by him. Um, so I, yeah, I, I mean, I don't want to give them too much credit because Mitch McConnell <laughs> right. refused to comment. Uh, and there wasn't exactly like they were coming out of the woodwork to denounce him. Um, but I think the media has been, played a very important role here. Yeah. If you watched even Fox News afterwards, the hosts really weren't buying it. I mean, they were giving guest platforms to say some pretty crazy things, but by Fox standards, it was a relatively tame affair. And on CNN, you know, for example, they were pushing back very aggressively mm -hmm. about what the president says. And everything the president has done has made it harder to achieve his objective. Saying I want the Supreme Court to decide the election for me makes it harder for the Supreme Court <laughs> to do that. Telegraphing that you're gonna send your lawyers in after the election, before the election, makes people realize that this is not based on the law, this is all about messaging and optics. So I think time and time again, Trump has undercut his own position. And it was pretty amazing to me yesterday to hear the president say, oh, well, I can't believe all of these mail ballots went against me. Well, you were the one for a year telling your supporters not to vote by mail. So, I mean, he, he's telegraphed every single thing that he wants to do, which has then made it harder for him to achieve his objective. But I am still concerned about people trying to disrupt the counts in certain places 
millions of Americans believing things that aren't real, a certain percentage saying they might resort to violence or extraordinary means. I mean, this is bad for the democratic process and it's gonna make it harder for Joe Biden to try to bring the country together uh, when he takes office as I expect he will. I, I think some of the things you've said need emphasis because they are so correct, which is a concession is normal, it's expected, but it is not required. There is nothing that will change the outcome if someone concedes or doesn't. If you concede, but the votes keep coming in and you end up with more votes, your concession is null and void and you're still the winner. If you don't concede and you don't have the votes, you're out of office. So it's really unnecessary. Um, it does raise a question though, because you just were saying that the states control the voting, which is true. They set the rules for how vote voting is done in their state and how votes are counted in their state. So why are there all these lawsuits in federal court? What is the role of the federal government in voting? That's a good question. I mean, so there, there are both state laws about voting and then there's federal qualifications for voting. But essentially, a lot of the state laws are challenged under federal law, right, in terms of whether there's equal protection violations or due process violations, um, things like that. I mean, normally, as you know, Jill, you're filing to challenge bad things right. in federal court. You're challenging voting discrimination, voter suppression, things right. like that, under the Voting Rights Act or under the 15th Amendment, those kind of things. Um, but honestly, the federal courts don't really want to get involved in these state processes. I mean, I think that's one reason that there hasn't been a whole lot of litigation filed in federal court. A lot of these things have been filed in state courts in Pennsylvania or in Michigan, for example. Um, and they've been dismissed um, pretty quickly because as you said, there are procedures in place in all of these states. And these were normal procedures that were followed in these states. And so the, the Trump campaign said, oh, we're not, you know, people are not allowing us in, which just, just wasn't true. I mean, there, there was one exchange that was pretty amazing um, between a, a federal judge who was appointed by George W. Bush and the Trump campaign. And the Trump campaign said, we're not being granted access to observe the voting process in Philly. Yes. And the judge said, I thought you were. How many people do you guys have there? And the Trump campaign said, we have a non-zero number of people. And the judge said, what's the issue then? I mean, you're, you already have what you're asking for. I mean, so it, again, this was just all designed as misinformation, as disinformation. It, wasn't it was also designed. being live streamed. You could watch on your television the vote count. So, I mean, that's the whole thing about frivolous lawsuits. That's a good example of a case where the costs of the suit should be borne by the plaintiff. There should have never been a case. The court costs and the defense costs should be reimbursed by the Trump campaign for having brought that frivolous suit. Yeah, and I just think in general, there was way too much litigation this election. Uh, it was yeah. extremely confusing for voters for the laws to be changed so often yeah. by federal courts. The most extreme example being five days before the election in Minnesota, the Eighth Circuit just changed the deadline for when you could receive your mail ballot, which is just completely unprecedented that a court would do that, specifically when the Supreme Court said, don't change election rules so close to an election. So I'm hoping going forward, what we can do is try to have some 
federal standards in terms of how elections work, while understanding that states have the ability to run their elections. But I think it's crazy that the laws for how votes are counted and the deadlines and all this stuff vary so much from state to state and that it can be litigated so close to the election. I think that's a result that I think we had would like to avoid. I mean, obviously, you have a, if you have a bad law, you would like to be able to change it. But I think voters having certainty in what the law is actually going to say is the most important thing. So if your ballot has to arrive by election day, you know that well before election day. Or if you're told that your ballot can arrive after election day, you're not afraid that your vote is going to be thrown out. So I think all of litigation was extremely confusing to voters this time. Yeah, yeah. good points. And the states have until December 8th to certify the winners and the electors vote on December 14th. So is there any chance that lawsuits, um, hopefully not frivolous, uh, and, and I want to point out that so far, no lawsuits have been under the 15th Amendment or equal protection or any voter, I mean, voting rights. They have been based on technical claims um, and false claims, unverified, without evidence, claims of, of voter fraud. Um, but let's say there's a lawsuit that delays the count or delays um, certification. What happens if, if the certification can't happen on December 8th because it's still pending in court. Is that possible even? It, it is possible. It almost happened in Florida 2000 and it raised a lot of thorny constitutional questions because normally what happens is that electors are nominated following the winner of the popular vote in the state. Mm -hmm. But if you don't know who won the state, the question is who has the power to appoint those electors and what happened in Florida 2000 was the deadline was nearing to certify the electors and the Supreme Court had not ruled yet. And the Florida Supreme Court had not ruled that. And so the, the Florida legislature, was, which was controlled by Republicans, they actually floated the idea that they were going to appoint their own electors so that, so that they would have representation in the Electoral College. Now, recently, as recently as yesterday, you had Mark Levin, the right-wing talk show host, saying, state legislatures should just appoint their own electors no matter what happened in those states. I just wanna be very clear, that is illegal. State legislatures cannot change the law after the fact to override the will of the voters in their states. The only way they could do it is if there was a situation you were talking about, Jill, where we didn't know who won a state and we needed to appoint electors on December 14th and there was no resolution. I don't see that happening in any state right now. The closest state is Georgia. I think there will be a recount in Georgia, but I don't see it being a recount that goes until uh, December 8th or 14th. What happened in Florida 2000 was a really extraordinary situation that I don't believe is going to uh, repeat itself this time. Yeah. Um, so in the coming days, weeks, and months, um, you know, we're going to see a lot of misinformation. And um, is there anything you'd like our audience to know about what we should expect and what sources we should look at when it comes to counting the ballots or election litigation? I think it's really important to listen to what local election officials are saying. One of the really good things that happened in the last few days is that you had secretaries of state who actually oversee the election process on to talk about it, that you had local election officials on to talk about it, and to really demystify the process for people, to talk about how it works, the built-in safeguards, the transparency that occurs, 
all of that stuff I think is really important. And I think that the media just gonna have to walk people through the process in the same way that the media walked people through the process of how the vote counting would work, that mail ballots uh, were gonna be counted later uh, in certain states like in Pennsylvania because of laws set by state legislatures. They have to walk people now through how the votes are counted, how they're certified, um, that entire process, because I don't expect the misinformation, unfortunately, to stop because one candidate is clearly losing and has likely lost the election. And that candidate is going to intensify a disinformation a campaign. Um, but I believe the litigation will soon run its uh, course. I believe that votes are going to be counted and certified uh, in pretty short order. And I think we're gonna get onto the business of governing uh, relatively soon. And people should just understand that that is a legitimate democratic process. It's not a process that's radically different um, from the past. And I think that if people have questions about this process, they should reach out to local election officials. They should reach out uh, to secretaries of state, to state attorneys general, people like that who have credibility uh, and ignore a lot of the things that are being said on Twitter and Facebook and Reddit and swirling uh, among the president's Twitter feed uh, and uh, his campaign. It was amazing. If you went to his Twitter feed yesterday, it was all blanked out because yeah. everything he said was untrue. And it's just amazing to me that everything the president of the United States is saying is untrue. I mean, Jill, you dealt with Richard Nixon. And I mean, compare Nixon now to Trump, I mean, it's like a whole nother level of lying when it comes to what the president is saying. Richard Nixon is an angel in comparison. Yeah. Well, I know that Ari has to go now, but thank you so much for being here. We really enjoyed this conversation. Um, and you know, we're hoping for the best in the coming days and weeks to come. Thank you guys. Be Thanks well. Thanks so much. Thanks. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Intergenerational Politics. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. Thanks so much. See you in our next episode.